A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode is dedicated in memory of the Kadeshe Maron. May we never experience tragedy like that ever again. Um had a Chsam Seifer and his family episode last week, and I got some great feedback from that. Lots of people informed me that they too are proud Eniklach of the Chsam Seifer. A few others told me that they're not uh, descendants of the Chsam Seifer. But many, many expressed interest in hearing more episodes about um, the Chsam Seifer and his life and his uh, impact um, so we're still waiting for some sponsors to step up. So be in touch with me about that at yehuda.yehudagabra.com. You can email me and we'll work on a series about the Chassam Seifer. I just recently had a trip to Italy, to part of Italy, Venice, Padua, um, Padua, and it was my first time there. It's a great group. Um, it was it was it was on, it's on my mind uh, because it was my first time there. It was very exciting. Um, I never really did much uh, of Italian Jewish history on this podcast, and it's such a rich and diverse history that I wanted to just uh, open up the topic by doing a little bit about Venetian Jewish history. I mean, in general, in Italy, there's there's both for the general history and, of course, with Jewish history, there's there's several different stories there. There's the north, uh, northern section of Italy, which is most of the Jewish history is up there in the north, all these many, many different Jewish communities in the north, um, very long, ancient uh, Jew, Jewish story over there. There's the central part of the country, most significantly Rome, um, where the Papal States were for many years, the central part of the country. And that's a significant Jewish history as well, especially Rome itself. And then there's the southern part of the country, which there's less Jewish history. There was, though, uh, more of a Greek influence there, as the southern part of the country, of course, is also connected to American Jew- American history. Not American Jewish history, American history, because... Um, the great emigration from Italy 
um, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And the rise of the Italian-American community was primarily from the south, the poorer part of the country, uh, Sicily, the islands off of Italy as well. Um, we always talk about how the Jewish immigration was from Russia in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So two and a half million uh, Jews left Russia, mostly to the United States. So here in Italy, there was something like, I think, 13 million Italians left the country during those same years, much, much more, many of whom, I think four or five million, uh, came to the United States. So it's a, you know, one of the greatest immigrations in world history. There was some Jewish history in the South as well, um, but, um, but like I said, it was more in the North. Um, I also discovered that speaking Italian is not that difficult because if you take almost any English word and you add a vowel to it at the end of the word and you sing the word, then it's pretty much speaking Italian. So it doesn't take much. For instance, when you go down, Venice, of course, is, is, is a city on, on, on the water and all canals, um, all these little islands and bridges and waterways. So the main waterway going through the city is the Grand Canal. So it's the Canale Grande, and all of a sudden you said the same exact thing in Italian. So I want to focus on, on Venice, Venezia. Um, Padua is, of course, a separate story. We'll have to save that for another time. The very important part of Jewish history in Padua as well. The University of Padua was the first university in, in pretty much in the world, or at least in Europe, to accept uh, Jewish students. There was also a rabbinical school later on in, in Padua. Um, one of the great Rishainen Mari Mintz, Rabbi Dalevi Mintz, was uh, a rav in Padua for nearly a half a century, 47 years. There are many other great rabbis uh, there as well. Let's, uh, we're going to save that for another time. There's also um, a great center of Haskalah, the famous Shadal, Shmuel David Luzzato, member of the very prominent Luzzato Italian family. Um, of course, the Ramchal's a member of the same family a century earlier. He himself grew up in Padua also. But Shadal is also a fa fascinating story. I, th I believe, I think, as far as I know, Fiorello LaGuardia, who, is, who had Jewish ancestry, descended from the Lozatos, and I think Shadal himself was an ancestor of LaGuardia. Either way, that's all That's all. Uh, Padua, we're going to focus on Venice. So Venice is this beautiful uh, city on the water um, with all its canals and bridges, like I said. And the it was a republic. It was a city-state uh, for about a thousand years from the 8th century until the Napoleon conquest, Napoleonic conquest in 1797. So over a thousand years it's a republic. It's a city-state. It is not. There's no kingdom of Italy. That's a product of the 19th century and European nationalism, and it's not part of the papal states, um, which is the which is central Italy, in northern Italy. There's lots of these um, city-states and very important ones. They're centers of commerce and the rise of banking and 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 Mediterranean commerce uh, ports and everything goes through Venice and many other cities of northern Italy very important for that uh, time period very wealthy city states 
and many Jews live. That's why many Jews live there. Of course, whenever there's commerce, so there's the when Jews live in Venice, they're living in this republic. It's not in Italy. It's not in Rome. It's not under the Pope. It's the Republic of Venice. The Dej, the Duke, basically. Of uh, he's like the king. He's like the ruler. The 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 local politician of this little country, basically. And what happens is, is that um, as time goes on, um, 1492, of course, there's the expulsion from Spain, and um, some Spanish Jews make it to Venice, which increases the Jewish community. Right then, there's there's several different Jewish communities in Venice. There's there's a older, one of the oldest and most prominent Jewish communities in Venice was the Ashkenazi Jewish community. They came south from. Germany through the Rhine River Valley in southern Germany, and they moved south and eventually hit Italy and they settled in Venice. So there's this Ashkenazi uh, community there. Um, they're from the oldest, uh, poorer. They engage in money lending, which is the only thing that the Christian uh, authorities allow them to do. There is also an Italian Jewish community, which is Distinct. It's not Ashkenazi or Sephardic, um, and they come from Rome, from central Italy, and they settle down in Venice as well. And then, following the Spanish expulsion, so Sephardic Jews from Spain, from Portugal, from the Iberian Peninsula, they arrive at the beginning of the 16th century as well to Venice. And there's eventually a second Sephardic community, the Levantine. Jewish community as well from the Levant, from the from the Mediterranean basin, from Asia Minor, from the Middle East, however you want to call it, whatever the terminology is. Uh, so they they settle there also. It's a, it's a different type of Sephardic Jewry. It's not exactly from Spain. It's from the Middle East. So there's these four distinct, and they remain distinct, which is very interesting because Venice becomes one of the earliest cities in the world where there's this cosmopolitan, different types of Jewish communities there. Most um, most Jewish communities until modern times, until our modern urban post-war world, are uh, most, most, most uh, Jewish communities until that time are homogeneous, not heterogeneous. Am- uh, Amsterdam is, is an exception. Yerushalayim is an exception. Um, other cities, um, Bucharest in Romania is an exception. Other places as well where there's different types of Jewish communities with different backgrounds and different customs. But Venice might be perhaps the most diverse, especially that early on in the 16th century. Uh, They already have four different distinct Jewish communities there with their own shuls, their own ways of prayer, their own customs, their own halacha, their own rabbanim, their own uh, everything, their own culture, their own language. Everything is different. And they all live side by side. And most importantly, uh, following the year 1516, they're all in a ghetto together. The Dej of uh, Venice decides that there's too much competition from the Jewish merchants, and uh, it's not good. It's not, they need to isolate them from the Christian population, and they enclose them in a na- specific neighborhood. And dispute, till today, where the name comes from, but eventually... It comes to be called a ghetto, probably because of the the foundries, the the metal works that were in that neighborhood before 
the Jewish neighborhood uh, emerged there and was enclosed there. Um, but there's all kinds of other speculative uh, theories about where the the name ghetto comes from, which is uh, an interesting discussion. But eventually the Jewish quarter, the Jewish neighborhood emerges with the name ghetto. The pronunciation ghetto probably comes from the German Ashkenazi Jews who were the original community in the ghetto. The Spanish uh, Jews uh, only arrived there um, later. Um, and uh, and uh, and uh, they're enclosed in there, and there's guards, uh, Christian guards, at the entrances to the ghetto that the Jewish community has to pay for um, to enclose themselves inside. They're not allowed outside after midnight, uh, and they're they are only allowed out with the church bells of Saint Mark's uh, Basilica. When they ring in the morning, then the Jews are allowed out. They're allowed to only engage in money lending and very, very limited other trades, shmata trade, you know, used clothing, uh, and several others. They are they have to wear distinctive Jewish dress. They have to wear originally a yellow uh, distinctive mark on their dress, which eventually is copied by the Nazis. And the idea of the ghetto is copied again by the Nazis in a much more extreme conditions, obviously. Um, not really a comparable story at all, the Nazi ghetto to the Venetian ghetto, but the idea of it, that the Jews are enclosed off uh, in, in, in their own secluded area and also marking off the Jews uh, with a yellow uh, mark and eventually it's a yellow hat. This is the, the original man, men with the yellow hat were the Jews of Venice. Um, and, then, uh, and, then the, um, and then it becomes a red hat, actually, so they have to wear a red hat. There are exceptions, you know, some certain privileged ones aren't. Doctors, Jewish doctors didn't have to. Either way, there's all kinds of restrictions, taxes and and uh, a very oppressive lifestyle. It was not, not very friendly. The government was not very friendly. The populace was not very friendly. Um, all kinds of anti-Semitic decrees and restrictions and threatened expulsions and pogroms. And it was a not very great situation. But the Jews were happy that they were able to live there in this wealthy city and republic and center of commerce, especially since they were expelled out of so many other countries. And on the flip side, you had a amazing, it happens almost the same year. It's almost like a you know, incredible hashgach of Jewish history that, that, that 1516, the ghetto was established. And a year later, 1517, Daniel Bomberg, his printing press, opens to with the publication of Jewish books, Hebrew books in in Venice. Daniel Bomberg is this Christian from Amsterdam, and he becomes the greatest printer of Hebrew books, possibly in Jewish history, up until Art Scroll, maybe. Um, he he is the the pioneer of Jewish of Hebrew printing, and he's as a Christian, and he you know, hires this Jewish team to edit it and 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 work on it, rabbis and others, and 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 uh, he publishes the first complete Shas, until that you had Gershon Sansino, a Jewish-Italian, uh, printing individual volumes of Shas, and here Bomberg prints an entire set of Shas. He's, he's the first complete Shas, is printed by this Christian. He prints the Mikrois Gedailis Chumash, with uh, the original Yerushalmi, a Chuvas Harashba, the Chumas Hadeshen, Many, many, many more svarim. A fascinating story. Daniel Bomberg himself, over 200 different titles he goes ahead and prints. And he pioneers many things that we take for granted today. 
in both Shas and Chumash, he is the pioneer, the pages of Shas, the, the way we count the daf you know, till, till today, the daf Yaimi is his pages, the layout um, which originally had from Sansino, the, the Gemara in the middle, Rashi and Taisus on the side, but uh, Bomberg uh, solidified that layout in the rest of Shas, and Bomberg adds the rush and the commentary of the Rambam and Mishnayis and uh, other things in the back of the Gemara. He pioneered like that. He created the standard of Shas. Also in Chumash, something even more that we take for granted. The idea of the division of Chumash and Tanakh to be divided into chapters is, of course, of Christian origin. Jewish origin and the Jewish origin of Tanakh, there is no um, uh, chapters and psukim. I mean, there is division of psukim, but not numbered psukim, the numbering of the psukim. Uh, one, two, three, four, or Aleph, Beis, Gimel, however you choose to do it. That is all of Christian origin. And of course, the division into Prakim, into chapters, is for sure of Christian origin. How did it get into our Chumashim? So that's Bamberg. Bamberg puts in the Prakim, Bamberg numbers the Psukim, and then everything afterwards is copied from it. And we can't even imagine having a Chumash without uh, Prakim and Psukim. And, you know, we need to thank uh, Bamberg for that as well. Um, uh, many, many other things, uh, once we talk about printing, by the way, now I said I was, I was also in Padua, which is right near Venice, so the Maharam of Padua, which he, he was, you know, he was very involved in, in printing also, w- working for these Christian printers, so he himself wrote a, a commentary to the Rambam, and he was going to have it printed by, um, you know, later on, the, the, the successors of Bamberg, Bamberg returned to Amsterdam, and later on, following his passing, uh, his printing press closed down. But there are other Christian printers, um, and uh, they they took over. They, they were they were uh, printing, and um, the Maharam of Padua worked for one of them, and he was going to have uh, exclusive rights that his commentary to the Rambam would be published by one of the printers, and the other one pirated uh, this. Rambam and its commentary and was selling it as a smaller and cheaper edition. One of them was Bragadin and Justinian. I'm probably mispronouncing them both. The Italian names are rather difficult for me to pronounce. And these two Christian printers are both printing the Rambam with the Maram of Padua's commentary. And this goes out into a full-fledged bitter dispute. Uh, The Maram Maram of Padua, Romer Katznel and Bogen, who was a friend and relative of the Rama in Krakow. Uh, he has him uh, print a, a manifest, a cherem, a, 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 a warning that no one's allowed to buy the stolen edition. Everyone has to buy the authentic and original edition because the other one was stolen. And, um, and it becomes a whole dispute between these two Christian printers. And eventually there's also, uh, uh, you know... Um, uh, converts, Jewish mishumadim who con- converted to Christianity, who get involved, and between these two Christian printers of Hebrew books and the mishumadim working for them on their behalf, there's a lot of uh, informing to the Church and to the Vatican and to the Pope that the these uh, subversive Hebrew books have all kinds of anti-Christian doctrines and anti-Christian statements and anti-church writings, and therefore they need to be banned and burned, and 
and so on, until uh, Pope Louis, the um, Pope, not Pope Louis, excuse me, Pope Julius, Pope Julius the Third, um, makes a burning of the Talmud, decrees a burning of the Talmud in 1553 on Rosh Hashanah in Rome, and it eventually spreads to the cities of northern Italy, and it's burned in Venice. Uh, a year later, under the Rialto Bridge, which is like a big tourist attraction, to go to the Rialto Bridge over the Canale Grande, and there, people, very few people know that the uh, Talmud was burned there. It's a very tragic place, also a place of destruction, and that became pretty much the end of uh, all Hebrew books and printing in Italy for that time. Either way, that was an, another tragic story. The Abarbanel, uh, Don Yitzchak Abarbanel, his last stop of his. Uh, tragic life was in Venice. The last five years of his life he lived in uh, in Venice, trying to intercede with the authorities to allow Jews to engage in the spice trade. He had lived prior to that in Naples. Before that, he was, of course, expelled from Spain, and he was the Secretary of Treasury of uh, King Alfonso of Portugal, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Castile and Aragon in Spain, and then later on of the King of Naples. And then later on, he lived in Venice. In the last five years of his life, until he passed away in 1508 or 1509, he lived in Venice, and then he's buried in, in Padua. Um, so it's, 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 it has a very, very diverse and rich history. Um, the Ramchal grew up in nearby Padua, but his he, he, um, he had a... Also, he was, um, you know, was misunderstood throughout his uh, most of his life, and he, he, he and his writings were excommunicated several times. The first one took place in Venice, um, the Besden of Venice. Um, they, they excommunicated the Ramchal and banned his writings, and that took place in a formal ceremony in one of the prominent shuls of the Venice ghetto um, in in the early. 1700s. Uh, so, so that took place in Venice as well. So there's a, there's a, a, a long Jewish history there. And we, I mentioned the Venetian Jewish economy, um, and I want to mention something else in that context. There's a very famous um, play written by William Shakespeare in late 1590s, 1598, 1599, called The Merchant of Venice. And it describes this whole story of where one of the main characters, the antagonist, the protagonist is this is the merchant of Venice, a fellow by the name a Christian by the name of Antonio, and the antagonist is a Jewish uh, moneylender named Shylock, which is not really a Jewish name, but that's a different story. And of course, the story, the plot is made up, but you know, between this myth and reality, between this legend or or work of art or play, however you want to call it. And then there's the reality of the Jews living in Venice, which is, you know, an interesting story because it does fit into some sort of historical context. Um, and and that's what I was fascinated, one of the things that I was fascinated by when I was exploring Venice last week was how much of the merchant of Venice is really expressing a reality of the way the Jews of Venice lived at that time in the Venetian ghetto. Of course, Shakespeare himself never visited Venice. He never left England. He didn't travel. And in Elizabethan England, there were no Jews. Uh, so uh, Shakespeare never met a Jew. Um, the Jews were expelled from England in 1290, and they weren't allowed back in until uh, 
the uh, 1650s with Oliver Cromwell. So Shakespeare in the late 1500s obviously never met a Jew. But the point is, is that the the story of of um, of how uh, Shylock is is trying to extract as much. He has this unreasonable claim to Antonio that he's going to take a pound of flesh um, for the, as as a bond as 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 when Antonio is is um, is is borrowing the money or not really borrowing the money. Bassanio is borrowing the money, but Antonio is is signing it off on his behalf, and and he says, if you don't pay it back in time, I'm going to take a pound of flesh, um, and it's because. Shylock feels wronged. Uh, Antonio had disgraced Shylock in the past, had shamed him, had done all kinds of nasty things to him because he treated him as a second-class citizen because he was a Jew. And therefore, Shylock feels that this is his way of, of restoring his pride and dignity. And then later on, when Antonio can't make up for the money, and they go to court, and Shylock demands the pound of flesh... And uh, and then you know, and Shylock has his own family issues. His daughter Jessica had married a Christian, so she had left the faith. Um, this fellow named Lorenzo, and then this lawyer, who's really a female dressed up as a male, Portia, um, and she's the one who who it seems outsmarts the Jew Shylock, but really she's acting pretty nasty to him as well because she says that he has to forfeit all his property. He has to give it to Antonio, he has to give it to the government, he has to give it to the church, whoever he has to give it to. And then he has to convert to Christianity, or he has to die. I mean, it's a pretty nasty outcome. And the, 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 there's like this Christian victory at the end of the play, um, where the Jew is humiliated. And many see it as an anti, expression of anti-Semitism of William Shakespeare, but it also could be expressing a very real reality of what Venetian Jews were living through at the time, the discrimination, the fact that they were almost all of them, especially the Ashkenazi Jews, were only allowed to engage in money lending. That was the only profession that they were allowed to. The Portuguese, the, the Spanish and Portuguese Jews had a few more sources of income um, over time. Uh, but that, that was, and they were restricted. They were in the ghetto. They were discriminated against. They were very often forced into these forced conversions or to give up their property to the state or unreasonable taxes and demands on them. And they were treated as second-class citizens. So there's there's this certain reality there. And whether Shakespeare himself personally was an anti-Semite could very well be. And it's it's somewhat irrelevant to the, to the question because uh, the reality is, is that is that it is an expression of a very real anti-Semitism of, of, of Venice, of, 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 of the way Jews had to live in Venice at that time, and not necessarily uh, 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 Shakespeare's personal opinions. Not only that, there's also this, um, this, this almost a Rachmanis, almost like a, you feel bad for Shylock at, at some level, and you see that they're really, really not treating him nicely. And Shakespeare does, in, in, in almost all of his plays, bring out the complexities of his characters, and therefore it's not so simple. And, and he deliberately leaves his characters not, not as a black and white, as the good guy and the bad guy. Shakespeare, Shakespeare is not Hollywood. His, his characters are much more complex and deep and multifaceted and shades of gray. So there's all these sides to, 
to how to view Shylock and Portia and Antonio and all these people inside and 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 actually Shylock does draw a lot of sympathy and 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 and, and saying hey this is this is wrong this is the the Christians are dealing the Jew in a very wrong way and and this is not you know to he 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 did lend the money he didn't demand interest um and he uh he's and 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 this is not fair that he's being forced to give up all his assets afterwards and he's being forced to convert to christianity or else he's he has some sort of death sentence uh why is that fair and then shakespeare puts in the words of shylock one of the greatest speeches of all time and since it's so great, I'm going to quote it in its entirety. I'm going to actually read from the script of Shakespeare, uh, of, from Shylock, to what he says to, to, the, to the judge or to the court. Um, when they ask him, why do you want this pound of flesh? What, what, what are you going to get from getting a pound of Antonio's flesh? What, what are you going to get from it? So Shylock answers, to bait fish withal, if it will feed nothing else. It will feed my revenge. He hath disgraced me and hindered me half a million, laughed at my losses, mocked at my gains, scorned my nation, thwarted my bargains, cooled my friends, heeded mine enemies. And what's his reason? I am a Jew. Hath not a Jew eyes? Hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions, fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is? If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? If we are like you in the rest, we shall resemble you in that. If a Jew wrong a Christian, what is his humility? Revenge. If a Christian wrong a Jew, what should his sufferance be by Christian example? Why revenge? The villainy you teach me, I will execute. And it shall go hard, but I will, but I will better the instruction. So that's fantastic. I mean, he's, he's, he's bringing out something that today, of course, we take for granted because we believe in, in all these wonderful liberal ideas of, of equality. And for us, it's, we take for granted that Jews should be treated as equal. But in the 16th century, in places like Venice or even in Elizabethan uh, England, where there were no Jews altogether, the fact that a Jew could go ahead and, and declare to the world that really, I'm a human being just like you, that was revolutionary. And, and Shakespeare's putting that speech in Shylock's mouth. And today it's become such a famous speech and it, you know, it even has comedic uh, um, knockoffs of, of you know like people who pick their noses and instead of prick like there's pick right so there's there's all kinds of spin-offs of this speech um, but but there's but the idea here that that uh, you know that that Shylock is is expressing what the Jews of Venice really were probably saying at that time that we're we're just people we don't deserve to be in the ghetto we don't deserve to be treated this way. And uh, and uh, and uh, it, it's in a certain way expressing very much the reality of Venetian Jewry at that time. So this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehuda.yehudageber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, lectures. Um, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. And I hope you enjoyed.